Well, brothers and sisters, I would ask if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in the ninth chapter this morning, Exodus chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 35 this morning. And when you have that, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word while I read this passage for us as we look at the sixth and the seventh plague that fell upon Egypt. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it towards heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it towards heaven, and it became festering boils on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had told Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take to heart the, war, the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt on people and animals and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning struck the land. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I've sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. Moses said to him, When I have left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were destroyed because the barley was ripe and the flax was budding. But the wheat and the spelt were not destroyed since they are later crops. Moses left Pharaoh in the city and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. He did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. It's 
Some of you may remember that on March 11th of 2011, a 9.1 Richter scale earthquake struck in the Pacific Ocean very near the country of Japan. And shortly after that, the, the quake was so powerful that it triggered a, a massive tsunami. And the wave of that tsunami, it, it went at something like 130 feet high waves and it traveled at something like 400 miles per hour until it reached the coast of Japan. And those are just massive numbers, 130 feet tall, 400 miles per hour. And the damage in the Tohoku region of Japan was catastrophic. On that day, some 20,000 people were killed by the tsunami. And I really can't imagine what it must have been like for the Japanese to look and see these waves coming at them at such unbelievable speeds. You know, they probably saw that first wave, but of course a, a tsunami is more than one wave. It's wave after wave after wave of destruction. And because there's so much power at work when a tsunami hits, the destruction that is left behind, it's total, it's complete. And I have to think that's how it was for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. As God's plague fell upon that land, something like a tsunami, wave after wave after wave, until the nation was utterly and completely destroyed. So as we continue our study of the book of Exodus this morning, that's what we're seeing as we look at this sixth and the seventh plague, the boils in the hail. It's two more waves of God's wrath is coming against the nation, uh, and his wrath is severe, and it's leaving intense destruction. But it's going to be interesting because when we move from the sixth to the seventh plague, you'll see that the Lord actually ratchets up the intensity of the destruction. And that intensity is only going to grow as the subsequent plagues come. So we're continuing our study in the book of Exodus this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 9, verse 7. And we looked at the second through the fifth plagues. And we saw that God began his judgment, of course, by turning the water of the Nile into blood. But then he followed it up in rapid successions with wave after wave of suffering. And we saw the plague of frogs and the plague of gnats and the swarm of flies. And ultimately, the livestock of Egypt were killed. And as we've gone through this, we've seen that these plagues were intentional. God knows what he's doing. And in sending these plagues, he's making a very clear statement that he is God and that the idols, the, the gods that were worshipped by the Egyptians, were not God. He's humiliating the false gods of Egypt on purpose. He's also doing this. He's revealing the hardness of the human heart in the person of Pharaoh. Uh, he's showing us in Pharaoh something of the hardness of the human heart because of sin. And he's also doing this in these, in these plagues. As they have progressed, we've noticed that the Lord has made a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't belong to him. So the people of Israel, they suffered during the first three plagues along with the Egyptians. But after that, in the fourth and then on, God made a point to say that no longer would his people suffer because he was making a distinction between them so that the Egyptians would know that it means something to belong to Yahweh. It means something to be under the protection of God. You see, it's a beautiful picture of the reality that God's people are not destined for wrath, but God's people are destined for salvation. It's a beautiful picture of that reality. Now looking at chapter 9, verse 8, all the way to verse 35, and the plague of the boils and the hail, we see this tsunami of God's wrath continue to pound Egypt. And God is really, he's unleashing his fury in wave after wave. And as we look at these two plagues, we're going to learn two key truths this morning about our God. So if you're taking notes, two truths about God from Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 to verse 35. First, we're going to see that the Lord is sovereign. It's a repeated theme in Exodus. The Lord is sovereign. We'll see that verses 8 to 12. And then we're going to see in a special way that the Lord alone is God. We'll see that in verses 13 to 35. The Lord alone is God. And that teaches something about our hearts 
and what we should be or who we should be worshiping. So let's look at that first truth then. The Lord is sovereign. Verses 8 to 12, we just read through those verses. You see this account of the sixth plague that came upon Egypt. And notice, if you will, that just like the third plague, this sixth plague came without warning. Uh, Again, these plagues come in cycles, three sets of three. And the third set or the third plague of the cycle, well, it's not not, uh, sent with any kind of a warning. Instead, it just comes upon the people of Egypt and captures them unaware. In verse 8, the Lord came to Moses and he told Moses and Aaron to go. And once again, they were to take uh, handfuls of furnace soot and they were to appear before Pharaoh. And they were to throw that soot into the air and then a miracle would happen. Uh, the soot would turn into dust, and that dust would scatter. It would multiply all over every part of Egypt. And what would be the result of this miracle? Well, as the dust settled, it would land on people and animals, and it would become festering boils on the people all throughout the land of Egypt so that the suffering of the people of Egypt would be total. Now, Now, why would the Lord want Moses to throw furnace soot into the air in particular? Why did he choose that substance as opposed to another substance. Well, the commentator John Currid noted that this would be poetic justice. You see, the furnace from which the soot was taken was very likely the exact same kind of furnace in which the Hebrews would have been making bricks for the Egyptians. So Currid put it this way. He said the furnace then was a symbol of the oppression of the Hebrews, the sweat and tears they were shedding to make bricks for the Egyptians. Thus, the very soot made by the enslaved people was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. You see, the Egyptians were going to be oppressed by the same instrument that they had used to oppress the people of Israel. And what kind of boils would would this soot, would this miracle produce? Well, we don't know exactly. And so commentators have offered different suggestions. Some have said that it was leprosy. As you read through the Old Testament, leprosy is a, a dreaded disease. Others have suggested that it was smallpox which has been a scourge up to recent times, and others suggest that the boils were produced by skin anthrax, which produces a large swelling on the skin, followed by massive boils and blisters, and it destroys the skin. We don't know exactly what kind of boils they were, but we do know that this plague was very severe. It was a terrible plague. Moses obeyed God's command. He threw the soot into the air. The miracle occurred. The dust settled, and there were festering boils on both people and animals, and the suffering of the Egyptians was extreme. And look in verse 11. You notice that even the magicians, and who are the magicians? Well, they're the ones who arrogated to themselves the position of opposing Yahweh in a special way. They were going to use their occult practices to show that they were just as strong as Yahweh. But of course, now they're covered from toe to head. Starts at the bottom and goes to the top with these boils. And the suffering is so bad that they could not even stand before Moses. Yahweh caused Moses to be able to stand before Pharaoh again and again and again. But the false gods of Egypt, they cannot enable these magicians even to stand when they're suffering from Yahweh's plague. But I want you to notice in verse 12 that things are even worse for Pharaoh. Uh, It says something that I think is rather terrifying in verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. So Pharaoh suffered from the boils as well, but it went further for him because the Lord did something more to Pharaoh. The Lord hardened his heart. Now we know because we've read through this narrative that, that Pharaoh has hardened his heart on a number of different occasions. And his heart is said to have been 
hard on a number of different occasions all throughout his interactions with Moses. But now the Lord is doing something. Now the Lord is stepping in. Now the Lord is, is judging Pharaoh, really, and hardening his heart so that Pharaoh would not, will, and could not, because his will was so twisted and ugly, repent. And look at verses 8 to 12 again, and let's think about it. What should we learn from this plague? Well, we learned that first truth, that first point, that the Lord is sovereign. Look at verse 11 again, and notice, notice Yahweh's sovereignty over the magicians. You have to admit that the magicians have had it bad this entire time. Uh, at first, it seemed like they could do something, but when you think about it, the magicians actually couldn't do anything that was helpful. The magicians couldn't do anything helpful for the Egyptians. All they could do was add more blood, and there was already plenty of blood. All they could do was add more frogs, and there were plenty of frogs. So all they could do was just add to the suffering of the Egyptians. But then after the, the third plague, they have to stand back and say, this is the finger of God. They just have to stand by and note that they were powerless before this God. But now notice, after this plague, after the sixth plague, the magicians can't even stand anymore. Now they are laid prostrate before the true God, and they just lay there in their misery, and they are silent in defeat. And notice... This is the last time we're going to see the magicians. They just kind of exit the stage in utter contempt and defeat. But of course, it's not just the magicians. As we said at the very beginning, in these plagues, the Lord is making a very clear statement against all the false gods of the Egyptians who these magicians, these sorcerers, represented. And many of these Egyptian gods and goddesses, and it's been fascinating to study just how many there are. There were so many for almost every aspect of nature. There's a, a different god or a different goddess. And they were said to do many things, and, and many of the gods were actually said to be able to do something of the same thing. So Amon-Ra was the creator god, and he was said to be a physician who heals. That was part of what his responsibility was. Toth, the bird-headed moon god, was also said to be a healer. But most of all, Sekhmet, who was a lion-headed goddess and whose priest formed one of the most ancient kind of guilds of medical uh, professionals in the ancient world. Well, Sekhmet was supposed to be able to begin and end plagues and epidemics. But all of the medical-related gods and goddesses of Egypt were shown to be frauds and worthless and unworthy of worship by this plague of the boils. But then I want you to notice in a special way even more the sovereignty of God that is displayed in this passage, because this is a key passage in Scripture as it relates to God's sovereignty over the human heart. And these are deep waters, and we're going to try to trudge through these waters carefully together. But look at verse 12, and notice how clearly, how boldly Scripture speaks when it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had told Moses. Now, again, as we've gone through this study of these plagues, this judgment of God, we've noticed the Scripture said many things about the heart of Pharaoh. It's repeatedly said that he hardened his own heart. So he's involved in this process. It's repeatedly said that his heart was hard. But now in verse 12, and this is the first time we see that the Lord himself hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've talked about this before, but I think it's important to underline what does it mean when Scripture says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Are we to understand that God in some way actually, actually put more evil into Pharaoh so that he did evil acts and sins? No, the Bible teaches that the Lord tempts no one to sin. When God hardens someone's heart, he does not actively make that person more sinful. He doesn't have to. You see, the Bible teaches that the human heart is already desperately wicked. 
So what does God do when he hardens? Well, he hardens the sinner's heart passively. And what that means is he kind of removes his hand of restraint in that person's life so that the the person's heart can do what it wants to do naturally. And what the human heart wants to do, because it's sinful, is it wants to sin. And so Pharaoh, when his heart was hardened, as God just removed his restraint from Pharaoh's life, Pharaoh runs after sin. You know, we talked about it this way. We've said that the heart of man is like the wax of a candle. Uh, You don't have to add something to wax to make it more hard. All you have to do is, is remove the fire of the candle. And the wax hardens on its own. Why? Because it's the nature of wax to grow harder. And the heart of man is like the earth. You don't need to add coal to the earth. What do you do? All you have to do is remove the influence of the sun, and the earth grows cold because in its nature to do that. In the same way, when God hardens the heart of an individual, he removes his restraint from their lives. And understand, God is under no obligation to add restraint. And the person's heart is hardened, and he or she runs after sin. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be a sinner. We have to understand how bad the plague of sin is so that we can see just how glorious the Savior is, so that we can worship Jesus, the one who rescues us from ourselves by his gospel. Now, now why, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? I, I think one answer has to be, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart as an act of judgment. And this is a terrifying judgment. As we've said over and over, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. Uh, He's acted arrogantly against the people of Israel. He's also acted arrogantly against the God of Israel. And he's shown over and over that he has absolutely no interest in worshiping and obeying the true God because he thinks of himself as a God And he acts in that way. But now for the first time in verse 12, we see that God steps in and hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh continues in his rebellion. In the words of Romans 1, God delivers Pharaoh over to his sin. And that's a terrible thing. Friend, if you love your sin, one of the worst things that can happen to you is for God to give you over to it and to let you pursue it more and more to your own destruction. Through his own choices, Pharaoh had been increasingly set in his way in opposition to God, but now Pharaoh had reached the point of no return, and as an act of judgment, God imposed further hardness of heart upon him. Now, we have to admit, these are deep waters. I would be lying if I said, well, I can unwrap for you the mystery of God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't ever intend to help you understand that fully because I can't. All I can do is tell you the Bible teaches both, and we have to teach both. God is sovereign, man is responsible, and that may be above our intellect, but the fact that it's above our intellect does not mean that it's not true. Friends, God's thoughts are what? They're higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways, and it's not just a little bit. He's he's way higher infinitely higher. So we trust him, right? What, what's the right response? If you, if you wrestle with this, what's the right response? It's to bow the knee and worship. It's to say, you and you alone are God and glorious. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to speak where the Bible doesn't speak. We don't want to give ourselves to fruitless speculations, but we do want to notice something here. This is a passage that displays the sovereignty of God. God is not pictured here as a passive deity who is simply sitting back and waiting because he has to, in some way, be bound to the dictates of man's free will. 
That's not taught in the Bible. You won't find that verse in the Bible. That's a philosophy that's been around for hundreds and even thousands of years, but it's not a biblical one. Now, when you look at the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is sovereign. He's in control. He's on the throne. Proverbs 21, verse 1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. What? He directs it wherever he chooses. Sovereignty. He's in charge. Romans 9, verse 18, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, who is that verse written about? It's written about Pharaoh, precisely in this passage that we're studying together this morning. It means that our God is sovereign over the hearts of men and women, over the hearts of all people. And so what should we take away from that? How should we apply that truth in this way? Oh, friends, do not harden your heart towards God. Don't do it. It's a terrible danger. I'm thinking particularly of young people here. So, so young people in particular, listen to me because I want you to think about this now. You, you, many of you, have been growing up in church and week after week you've been exposed to God's word and you've been exposed to the gospel. And the gospel is the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. But it's more than that. The gospel is a command. You have to understand that. It's not just a statement of philosophy. It's not just, hey, this is a good option for you if you want it. The gospel says, repent and believe, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. It's a command. But if you've been hearing the gospel week after week after week and you have been resisting and resisting and not obeying that command, well, friend, you've been acting like Pharaoh. You've been resisting God in precisely the same way that Pharaoh is resisting God because God's given you a command and the command is repent and believe. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Young people, understand it is a dangerous thing to harden your heart towards God. And it happens so often. So many young people ignore the gospel call. They do not repent. They grow up and they tell themselves, well, you know, Christianity is probably just made up anyways. Or they say this, you know, hey, I'm young. I've got time. I can enjoy myself for a while. And later on, maybe after I get married, maybe after I get kids, then I'm going to take this whole religious thing more seriously. Either way, what are they doing? They're resisting God. Uh, young people understand that's what you're doing. You're resisting God. And there is no guarantee at all that you're not going to find yourself one way in a very dangerous place. Because the Bible teaches that a time may come when you have your last time. And God steps in and he hardens your heart towards God, towards himself, as he did to Pharaoh. And that would be an act of judgment against you. And what would that be like? I think it would be like this. You're just going to care about Jesus and Christianity less and less and less. Just as the wax gets harder and harder, just as the earth gets colder and colder, the things of God, the things of the gospel are going to be less and less attractive to you. And you're going to find the things of this world become more and more attractive. Oh, I want to be like this pop star who's so wealthy. Oh, I want to have those nice cars. Oh, I want a perfect family. Oh, I want a wonderful house. And the things of God and the things of Christ are going to be utterly uninteresting to you. And as soon as you can, you're going to leave it behind. And you have to understand, that's a dangerous place to be. Because while some people, by God's grace, actually do later repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus, they do come back. Many, many, many do not. I've been following Jesus long enough now to see many people who I cared for turn away from Christ. And now they have no interest in him at all. 
uh, many of the young people that I grew up with in, in my youth group growing up, they have absolutely no interest in Jesus and in Christianity at this point. Two of my closest friends in Bible college, these guys were Bible majors. They studied God's word every single day for four years. And they said they were going to be pastors. Well, they, they left, they graduated, and what did they do? Well, they hardened their heart. And now Chris and Eric have absolutely no interest in following Jesus as he's presented in the Bible. They're just living for themselves in different ways. And I pray that they'll repent. I would love to see that. I'd love to see that happen. But you have to understand, that's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that they will repent. So don't harden your heart. This is a great opportunity for young people to do this. Take it seriously. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So read the Bible for yourself. There's a reason that for 2,000 years, uh, men and women have given their entire lives to studying God's word. It's not because it's worthless. So read the Bible for yourself and love your own soul enough to check out the claims of Jesus. He said he was God. He said he was going to die. He said he was going to rise from the dead. Here's a question. Did he do it? Did he do that? Oh, because if he did, it changes everything. It changes everything about your life because Jesus intends for you to turn from your sins and trust in him. And I pray that you will. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So you look at this this first point, this first truth. We see that our God is sovereign. There's a second truth. The Lord alone is God. Verses 13 to 35. I thought about uh, an event in my own life as I read these verses this week. Uh, After graduating from college, me and a friend, we traveled back across country. And when we found ourselves in Kansas, and it was Kansas, we found ourselves in an unbelievable thunderstorm that also included tornadoes. And it was night, and it was dark, and the lightning was everywhere. And it was just strike after strike after strike. It almost felt like day at times because it was so bright because the lightning was just everywhere dancing across the sky. And it continued to do so for hours without stopping. And even though we were inside of a car, it was honestly a little scary. But you know what? It was also beautiful and it was fascinating. My friends, we have to understand the storm that's talked about in verses 13 to 35, it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't fascinating. It was only terrible. Because this was a supernatural storm. This was kind of a physical manifestation of the fierceness of God's wrath towards the Egyptians. It was a a deadly tempest that killed anyone and anything that was in its path. Let's look at these verses again, verses 13 to 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Therefore give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take to heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt on people and animals, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant in the field and shattered every tree in the field. And the only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I've sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. Moses said to them, When I've left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were destroyed, because the barley was ripe and the flax was budding. But the wheat and the spelt were not destroyed, since they are later crops. Moses left Pharaoh in the city and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased. And rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. As you can tell, this is the seventh plague. The account of it is, is the longest that we've studied so far, some 23 verses in our English Bible. And only the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son of all the Egyptians, will be longer. But I think you notice also that there is a significant escalation in severity of this plague. This was a devastating storm. So in verse 13, the Lord tells Moses to once again confront Pharaoh and command him to do what? Let the people go. Uh, Do you notice that God's command hasn't changed at all? Do you notice that his terms haven't changed at all? Yahweh is the king. And he demands full surrender. He demands total obedience from Pharaoh. And then in verse 14, the Lord says, For this time I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and the people. And when he says that, I'm going to send all my plagues, the idea really is that he's going to send the full force of his plagues. That's how the New International Version of the Bible translates it. And I think that's right. And it means this. It means that the first through the six plagues, those were bad. But now the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th are going to be far worse. There's going to be an escalation here. In verse 15, the Lord lets Pharaoh know that he could have destroyed him and all Egypt by this time. But God had a purpose. And notice, what is God's purpose? It's to glorify himself. God's purpose is to glorify himself because he's glorious. And Pharaoh has a part to play in that. And so Pharaoh needed to go through the seventh plague as well. Now look at verses 18 and 19. You see how the Lord describes what this, what this storm, what this plague of hail is going to be like. He says, Tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Now, Now understand, isn't it gracious of God to give the warning? Our God is a God who in wrath, he remembers mercy. He warns them, this is what's going to happen. So respond, believe my word and respond and bring your servants and your livestock in so that they do not perish. And at this point, we actually see something remarkable, uh, something we haven't seen before. 
some of the Egyptians actually start listening to the Lord's word. Something's happening here. And actually later on when we get to the Exodus, we'll see that it's not just the people of Israel that leave, but there's a mixed multitude that also goes with them. And surely some of those were Egyptians. What's that a picture of? It's a reality that God's salvation has always been for all peoples, that his heart is for all peoples. So we see this remarkable thing. Some of these Egyptian officials, they pay attention, right? And they bring their servants and their livestock in. They, they flee to shelters. But of course, most don't. They're still trusting in the gods of Egypt to protect them from Yahweh. Their hearts are still hardened and hard, just like Pharaoh's. And so in verse 22 to 26, you see what happens. Moses stretches his staff towards heaven, and this storm comes right when God said it would come, and it was fierce with lightning and hail and death. And the hail in particular was severe, so that anyone who was out in the field, any animal that was out in the field, they died as a result of this plague. And notice what happens to all the plants and the trees. They're splintered. They're shattered as a result of this storm. This is a fierce storm. Verse 24 says that there had never been a storm like this since Egypt was founded as a nation. Historians tell us that that was around 3150 B.C., or some 1,600 years before this storm. This is a storm unique in its magnitude and its devastation. Now, verse 27, what does Pharaoh do? Once again, he sees the destruction, and so he calls for Moses, and he says, okay, it's fine. You you guys can go. I've sinned. He actually says that. I've sinned, and the Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are, are the guilty ones. There's been enough of God. There's been enough of his thunder. Uh, you can go. Just ask the Lord to stop the storm. So Moses says that he would do that. In verse 29, he said he would do that. But then notice he also told Pharaoh that he knew that Pharaoh and his officials still had not repented, that their hearts were still hard. Moses knew that they still did not fear God. But now look in verse 31 and 32, because this is interesting too. It seems almost like a side note, but, but I think it's another beautiful picture of God's mercy here. There we learn that the flax and the barley were not destroyed. They were destroyed, excuse me, but the wheat and the spelt were not destroyed since they are later crops. I know John Calvin, when he was commentating on this, he viewed this as a picture of God's mercy. God could have destroyed all of the crops, but he chose not to. He was leaving the Egyptians a little bit of hope. He was making room for repentance for them if only they would be willing to do so. But of course, that wasn't to be. As the storm ceased, Pharaoh's hardened his heart once again. It was hard. He didn't repent, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Now, now what should we learn from this remarkable storm? Let me make just one observation, and then let me give you what I hope will be a, a, a great encouragement for you this morning. The first observation is that the Lord alone is God. So that second point, that second truth, the Lord alone is God. You see that here. Uh, This is the main lesson that you see in this seventh plague. And you actually see it in three separate purpose clauses, one in verse 14, one in verse 16, and one in verse 29, where Moses explains to us why God is doing what he's doing, where the Lord tells us why he's doing what he's doing. So look at verse 14. First in verse 14, the Lord tells Pharaoh that he was about to send the full force of his plagues, all my plagues, if you have my version of the Bible, against Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would know that there is no one like me, Yahweh says. There's no one like me on the whole earth. In other words, Yahweh wanted Pharaoh to know that he, Yahweh, had unique power. Unique power. And that power was going to be seen in this storm, a storm unlike any other that had ever been seen in the history of Egypt. 
a storm that was unique in violence and devastation. And then verse 16, look at what it says there. The Lord continues to tell Pharaoh that he had let Pharaoh live. Literally in the Hebrew, caused him to stand. It was the Lord himself, as it were, that was propping Pharaoh up so that he would be able to go through this. Why? To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. In, order, in other words, Yahweh wanted his defeat of Pharaoh to be a, a display, a proclamation of his universal glory of the fact that God is worthy to be glorified, to be worshipped by all peoples. And friends, that's exactly what happened. Obviously, the people of Israel, they worshipped God for His power seen in these plagues. Uh, they praised Him as they went out through the Exodus. In Exodus 15, we're going to see them sing a song of praise to the Lord for His victory over Pharaoh in Egypt. But then think about it. Uh, Forty years later, what happens? They come to Jericho. And Rahab the harlot is there. And what does Rahab the harlot tell the two spies? We've heard about what the Lord did to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the hearts of everyone here are shaking in fear. We're terrified because we know that your God is the true God. And at that same time, the Gibeonites, who were a powerful people, they came and they surrendered. Why? Because they had heard about what the Lord had done to Pharaoh. And 1,500 years after that, when Paul wanted to point out the sovereignty of God, how did he point out the sovereignty of God? Well, he actually pointed to this passage. He actually pointed to verses 16 and 17 and showed that God had raised up Pharaoh precisely for this purpose, to demonstrate his glory and his power and his sovereignty. And so these Roman believers, well, they worshiped God for his power. And think about it, even since that time and unto today, every time this story, this reality, what God did in Egypt is told, and it's told to our children and truth seekers. And it's told to us now through the preaching of the word. What's happening? God is being glorified among the nations. In every age, in every place, the Lord is being glorified. Why? Because he is universally glorious. And that is seen in his destruction of Pharaoh. Philip Ryken put it this way. He said the plagues were part of God's missionary purpose to glorify his name in all the earth. Third, in verse 29, Moses told Pharaoh that he would appeal to the Lord. And he said, okay, the storm is going to cease. Why? So that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. This is the Lord's total authority. It's not just Israel that belongs to Yahweh. It's not just Egypt that belongs to Yahweh. What does Psalm 24 say? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. All, all nations, all peoples, all belongs to our God. He has total authority in the earth. And his ability to stop the storm, the storm that he created, demonstrates his total authority anywhere he wants to exercise it. So look at verse 14, verse 16, verse 29. In these purpose statements, you see God's unique power, his universal glory, and his total authority. And the idea is that the Lord has no rival. It means that the Lord and the Lord alone is God. Now, of course, that means something for the Egyptians, doesn't it? It means that Newt, who was the sky goddess of Egypt, was a fraud. Uh, she couldn't protect the Egyptians from Yahweh's storm. And Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, was also powerless before the Lord. And Seth, the dog-headed god of storms, was also a worthless idol. So once again, the Lord is humiliating the false gods and goddesses of Egypt, proving that they're nothing, and the application for us, brothers and sisters, is that we must remember that the Lord alone is God. And that means something for us. 
Listen to the way John, in 1 John, ends his epistle, his letter. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. Now, what an interesting way to finish that book. Why, why did he say, guard yourself from idols? Is there anything for us to learn there? After all, we don't bow down to statues. I think some of us think of Seth as a dog-headed god. We think that's kind of silly. What does that have to say to us in our day? We don't worship idols, or do we? And actually, we do. We're actually surrounded by idols, people and things that call us to worship them. Money, sex, relationships, work, houses, cars, status, spouses, uh, Facebook followings, all of those things become to us things that are so important, even good things like spouses and children. All of those things can become objects of worship in our hearts. And even though we're Christians, listen, brothers and sisters, Christ fellowship, I'm not just preaching to the wind, preaching to you, even in Christ fellowship, we know that all of the things of this world can become idols to us, which means what? Most especially, they take God's place in our hearts. God alone is God. God alone deserves first place in our hearts, but, but these other things, the things of this world, they can take first place in our hearts. And John Calvin said that our hearts are a continual factory of idols, and that's true. But because the Lord alone is God, we must worship Him and worship Him alone. And so may God help us do that, to worship Him with an undivided heart. A good exercise for you this afternoon would be to sit down with a piece of paper and before the Lord, with all humility, say, Lord, what, what is it that has central place in my heart? Is it you or is it something else? Is it another person? Uh, is it that promotion? Is it my bank account? Is it my 401k? Is it my beauty, my physical appearance? So my intelligence, what is it that takes central place in my heart? And then take the time, if you see something other than the Lord there, to turn from that. And repent. And commit yourself by God's grace to put Jesus in the place where he belongs, at the very center of our hearts, because he alone is a glorious and worthy Savior and King. Now, I want you to be encouraged this morning. Uh, this is a hard passage, isn't it? I mean, more thunder and hail and death. It's a difficult passage, but I want you to be encouraged this morning because I want you to notice that God's people are shielded from God's judgment. We see that here. God's people are shielded from God's judgment. So look at verse 26. The only place it didn't hail was where? It was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. So God's power is at work in devastating ways, bringing storms all throughout Egypt. But notice that God's power is also at work in another way. How? He's protecting, He's guarding His people so that the storm stays on the outside of the land of Goshen and nothing occurs within the land, but instead God's people are protected from the storm. So all throughout Egypt there is devastation, but in Goshen what is there? There is peace. There's security. Uh, there's tranquility. What is this? That's a beautiful picture of the reality that God's people are shielded from God's judgment. That's how it is for those of us who follow Jesus, you see. The people of Israel in Goshen were protected from the storm, but, but those who follow Jesus, those who are in Christ, we're protected from the judgment of God. That's true in this life. That's also going to be true on the day of judgment. You see, the, the people of Israel in Goshen, they had it good. We have it far better. 
Because we're going to be protected in this life, but then on the day of judgment when we must all stand before God and give an account for the way that we have lived our life, we're all going to be shielded and protected, not because we've done such a good job, but because Jesus did such a good job. And we're in Him. And we belong to Him. And He becomes for us a shield. He becomes for us a a strong tower, a place of refuge that protects us from the, the storm of God's wrath. And what a beautiful hope that is. Yeah, the storm of God's wrath is going to be fierce on the day of judgment against God's enemies. But those who are in Christ will be kept perfectly safe. And brothers and sisters, we need to think about this. And we need to be encouraged by it. Do you understand that if you belong to Jesus, you will never experience one drop of God's wrath against you? Some of us go through our days imagining that God is angry with us. Brother, sister, God's not angry with you because he was angry with Jesus on the cross in your place. And Jesus' sacrifice was a full and complete and perfect sacrifice. There's no wrath left for you. For you, there's grace. For you, there's favor. For you, there's fatherly love and care and protection and guidance and at times even chastening, keeping you on the right path, so that the day will come when you will stand before God, and you'll have to just bow the knee and declare that Jesus is God, and do so with great joy, because He is your Savior, your elder brother, your intercessor, your friend, your righteousness. There's no one like Jesus. And what a blessing to think that we're just like the people of Israel as they're protected in Goshen. So we are protected from the wrath of God because we are in Christ. And so, friend, as we conclude this morning, let me ask you, are you shielded from the wrath of God? Sitting where you are, listening to the sermon this morning, are you shielded from the wrath of God? Are you certain that on the day of judgment you're going to be able to stand, not because of anything you've done, because of what Jesus has done? Friends, you can. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we have as those who follow Jesus, is that there's a salvation that is available, and it's available this morning. You see, the Bible contains bad news. It teaches that all of us were created to know God and to love God and to serve Him. That's why we exist. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not a collection of chemicals and energy. You're a person created by God with a specific purpose, and that purpose is to worship God and know Him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, They thought it would be better for them to choose their own way, to do what they wanted to do. And so they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. They rebelled against His Word. They disobeyed. And we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature of sin, which teaches us to rebel against God and to live our own way. And listen, to try to have as much fun as we possibly can in this quickly passing life. As if we're going to be here forever as if death isn't coming for us all, but it is. If we're dying our sins, the Bible's very clear that we will stand before God, and there will be no protection on that day. There will be no barrier between us and the judge. Instead, we will perish just like the Egyptians who were out in the field during the storm perished. Oh, but you have to understand there's good news, and it's why we gather together to worship the Lord Jesus each and every Sunday. The good news is that Jesus becomes a shield for his people, for those who trust in him. That's why he came. The eternal Son of God became a man and came into this world and suffered. Why? Because he was establishing a perfect righteousness, because you and I, we lack that righteousness. We've all sinned. 
And then his mission was to die on the cross. Why? To bear in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. Do you realize that on the cross, Jesus experienced a far greater judgment than any Egyptian, including Pharaoh, ever experienced? No, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead. And now there's this wonderful promise. If you will turn from your sins. Remember, children, young people, I say don't resist the gospel. This is the gospel command. Today, now, turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Cry out for mercy. Ask him to forgive you. And our God is so good and gracious that he will do that. He will forgive you. And you'll be covered with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And you will be protected, just like the Israelites were protected in Goshen. We have no better message. We have no better, no better hope. It's Christ and Christ alone. Receive him this morning. We pray that you will. We're looking at verse 8 to 35. We've learned these two truths, two glorious truths. The Lord is sovereign, and the Lord alone is God. And as we leave Exodus this morning, the, the tsunami waves of God's wrath are continuing to pound the shore of Egypt against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And friends, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, the worst is yet to come. Let's pray.